Welcome to Little Minds, Big Thinkers. I'm your host, Tammy McMorrow. This is a podcast where we celebrate the magic and messiness of the elementary thinking classroom based on the work of your favorite of mine, Peter Liliadal. In each episode, we'll hear and learn from those who are in the elementary trenches doing this important work. My hope is that this podcast offers you a front row seat to how building a thinking classroom by Peter Liliadal is liberating our youngest mathematicians to think all over the world. In today's episode, I was blessed by the presence of Laura Weiss, a second grade teacher from Massachusetts. Boy howdy, did she inspire me. I have a feeling you'll be inspired too. Enjoy. Well, hi, Laura. I'm so excited that you agreed to talk to me today. Uh, I know listeners are in for a real treat as they get to know you and also your thinking classroom. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Well, you're my you're my first official talk, so I feel like you're my guinea pig, and I really appreciate <laughs> you doing that for me. Not that my seven-year-olds weren't official, but it's a little bit different when you're talking to an adult rather than a seven-year-old. Exactly. Well, I was hoping that you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself as not just a teacher, but a human. So both of those areas. Sure. So... Uh, in terms of teaching, I'm in my 13th year of teaching, and I've primarily taught second and third grade with a quick one-year stint of teaching fourth grade, um, which I enjoyed, but it was not for me. I, I've always, I think, liked the younger grades. Mm-hmm. I also am a mom to two amazing girls who keep me on my toes, and I think that sometimes is my inspiration for where problems come from in terms of math. And I was thinking to myself the other day, um, my classroom, I was like, does everyone just like randomly see math everywhere? Because when I go to like the dentist's office, I look up at the ceiling and I'm like, hey, it's an array. Oh I don't think that everyone (laughs) like sees those things. Uh I was just thinking like, that's kind of like that real life piece of like learning that has always attracted me to what it is. Um, to being a teacher. And I always feel like I define myself as I'm a teacher and I'm a mom. And those are like those two big pieces. So teaching is definitely a big part of my life. Mm -hmm. And you're in Massachusetts, right? Yes. Okay. What part? So I am in Framingham, Massachusetts, which is not far from Boston, which I'm sure most people have heard of. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have, I'm, I'm in, I met you through the Facebook group, um, the K2 Facebook group, but then I got to actually meet you in Indiana this summer at the first annual BTC conference. And I have two favorite memories that um, involve you. One of them was when you and Heidi and I were sitting in the front row at Peter's fireside chat. And we were like this close from him, like just feet (laughs) away. And it was just nice that I wasn't the only one who was like fangirling on the front row that you two were joining me. And then the other favorite memory is when I heard how you met Peter 
for the first time. Oh, yeah, that so, was hilarious. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? So I think oh, it's so funny because the conference was back in July and it's like November now, but I still feel like it was such a big like highlight. It wasn't, it was like the end of June, right? School had yeah. gotten out and like most teachers are like, it's vacation. I was so pumped to just go do more like learning and do math. And it was funny because, of course, I decided I was going to wear a math T-shirt to go on the airplane to go to the conference. Right. And when I was getting on the plane, I had bumped in to someone who was also wearing a math T-shirt. And she's like, are you going to the BTC conference? I was like, absolutely, I am. Are you? <laughs> and it turned out to be Annalise Record, which was hilarious because as a teacher, I've always used her website. And so I was, first I'm like, oh my goodness, like here I am talking to someone who I've looked up to. So we happened to be in the same row sitting right next to each other. Uh And then when we got to the airport, I was scheduled to take a shuttle, but I had time. So I was just kind of like walking around the airport and I bumped in to Heidi, who also teaches in Framingham, but had taken a later flight. And she goes, oh, I just saw Peter in the airport. And I was like, what? He's here. Like he's among us. And, you know, we were waiting and waiting for the shuttle. And then the next thing, you know, there's Peter walking and I could not, I, it was this funny moment because you see him and I recognized him, but to me, you know, he's almost like, you know, a celebrity, right? Yeah. Like, I know he's a educator and, um, mathematician but to me it was the same as if I was seeing someone that you watch on tv or in the movies right and it was hilarious I think because the fact that there was only six of us on the shuttle and it was three educators Peter his wife and then Chase Wharton was on the shuttle that's right and I channeled Annalise because when we were on the plane she was like we should take a picture together so while we were on the shuttle I said you know, we should really document this memory. We should take a picture together. And so we got to take a picture and just spend time on the shuttle, like talking. Oh. Turns out the uh, there was a group of educators from Hawaii who were supposed to also be on that shuttle, but their flight had gotten delayed. And so they were coming later, which is too bad because I don't know if you remember the woman from the panel from Hawaii, but she was just so funny and so endearing. So right. I can only imagine what that shuttle would have been like if all of us had been on there. Except you got him to yourself. Oh, I know. it was such like, it was like this brush of stardom. Yes. I remember seeing that picture when I met you that night and thinking how wonderful and inside thinking, Oh, I wish I would have been on that shuttle. That is just amazing because I was, you know, waiting for my turn to meet Peter. So I'm texting all my educator friends back home. Like, look who I'm meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Did they know who it was? So our math coach and another, our uh, district member who uh, was a former math coach at my school, both of them had were kind of the ones who supported and introduced me to building thinking classrooms. So they knew who it was and they were like, you're glowing. And I was like, (laughs) of course I'm glowing. I've just met Peter, like the Peter. That's like an event. Yes. I'm so glad you had that, that opportunity to spend some time with him and his lovely wife. I think she's just amazing. Agreed. 
Well, before we jump into the heart and soul of your thinking classroom, I just wanted to start with celebration. One of my favorite quotes is, until further notice, celebrate everything. It's like nothing is too small to celebrate. So what would you like to celebrate this morning? And it can be silly, fun, serious, school-related or not. Just a little something that you'd like to celebrate. Oh, that's such an interesting question. I, I was thinking about... Like the, we last year we did this reflection thing where we would celebrate things. And I always consistently wrote, I celebrate my students. Mm. And I just, when I think about them, they continue to just impress me with their ability to, to persevere and to keep going. And for me, sometimes it's those like little moments. And I'm thinking about yesterday, I was just trying to like clean up the classroom before Thanksgiving break. And one of my students, he just immediately jumped right in and he's like, all right, like, let's get the boards away. I cleaned the board for you. Look how shiny it is. Mm. And just that like pride and sense of like, this is our classroom, like this is our space and how much not only did he want to, you know, support me and help keep the classroom clean, but just how happy he was with what he had done for our class. Yeah. And I, I love those little moments of that. Right. Those are beautiful. And it also, I think, speaks to the community and the culture that you have built. Right. Um, exactly. I always talk, it's not my classroom, it's our classroom. Yeah. And I think that sense of ownership over the space and what happens in the room, like we all clean up, we all support right. each other. Right. We're working as a team. One of the things that I've learned from Christine Mraz and Christine Hertz over the years. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're pretty amazing. Is that they've taught me to say things like, um, so thank you for pushing your chair in, not because I told you, but because you care about the community. Or thank you for helping me clean up this mess, not because I asked you to, but because you care about the community. So really putting the community above, above me. I'm not this authority figure that's asking you to do these things. You're doing them just because you care so much about this space and the people in it. So yeah, that's obvious that that's the community that you're building in your classroom. Well, you mentioned that uh, your coach was part of this process of introducing you to BTC. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, that journey to it? Sure. So our district was work has been working on our math vision and it was presented that we were going to start a shift into how we were teaching math based on what research says is best for students. And so it was offered that you could uh, choose to be a pilot building thinking classrooms. Hmm. And so you could read the book and then you would implement it with the goal of doing it, you know, one or two times a week to really kind of see what happened. Of course, I'm always one of those people who I think wants to improve my practice and wants to push myself to do something different or something that maybe I wouldn't be 100% comfortable with or a little bit like stepping into that discomfort and 
really embracing it. Uh So of course I was like, sure, I'll do it. And at the time, I think when I had said that I hadn't really read the whole book. So I actually didn't really know what I was saying I was signing up for. It just seemed like a really good opportunity. So I read the book over the summer. And when the school year started, what had really stood out with me was this idea that you needed to have that like consistency of these random groupings. Mm -hmm. And so immediately my thought was, well, if it's going to be consistent, random groupings, I need to do it every day because I thought that if I was only doing it once a week, then the students weren't going to really get the idea that we work with random partners. Like how do you really once a week understand that that's just the way our practice is? Yeah. So I decided that I would just keep doing it. And at first that I, I remember the first time putting them at their boards with random partners, that kind of unease of, I have no idea what it's about to happen in the room. <laughs> and, you know, there were definitely days where kids would get a partner and they'd be like, but I don't want to work with them. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, that's what the cards chose today. Maybe the <laughs> cards tomorrow will choose someone different. Right. And I think continuing to also let kids see that it wasn't me picking who they were and it was truly completely random. I used giant playing cards. Yeah. And I think that was really important. Um, And it just grew. You could watch when you like look back on the photos that I took of their boards from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, the boards went from giant illustrations to boards that were this organized math. Yeah. And one, one day I had launched math class and I don't know what I had said previously, but I said, all right, one, two, three, let's do math. And the class just hooked onto it. So I have a cricket at home. So I made my own shirt that said, let's do math. And I had made one for our math teacher. And she was like, I went into the, we have a dual language Portuguese program at our school. And she said, she went into the class and the kid was reading her shirt, but then she realized, but it wasn't also in Portuguese. And the kid, I think had pointed it out. I said, there we go. So the shirt became, let's do math. Vamos fazer mochimachica. And the kids just loved it. So every, we, we started doing on Wednesdays, we wear our math shirt. So I'd made them for my whole team. But then the, my students would look at me and say, where's my shirt? (laughs) Why do other people have a let's do math shirt? Where's my let's do math shirt? So we actually ended the school year with, I bought white, plain white shirts and all of the kids made their own let's do math shirts and they would write their names on it. But it was so cute because they were also writing math problems on their shirt. It was was almost like it had become their visible service. Right. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. And I think too, you know, one of the things that's great about Framingham that I truly love is the diversity and about half of my class, you know, each year are English language learners. And some of the students are students who have just arrived from Brazil to the United States. And so they don't yet have this speaking skills in English. And that can be really scary for some students who don't know how to speak Portuguese because they don't know how to communicate with them. But what I found is that math was this bridge to Mm. building a community and also 
building the ability to communicate with someone who might not speak the same language as you and watching how the kids that, you know, tend to at first hang out with, oh, like I speak Portuguese, you speak Portuguese. I'm going to spend time with you or, oh, like I know you, like I've gone to school with you my whole life. So I'm going to spend time with you. But I watched like as during the course of the year doing building thinking classrooms, I'd see at recess, all of a sudden, like new groups of kids would emerge. And it wasn't like different little pockets of kids. It was true, like a mix of the class. Mm -hmm. And I felt like just that community piece alone of, wow, like we're all one group of mathematicians was just so powerful to see. Yeah. We're not just building thinkers. We're building we're building a community of citizens who work and think and play together. It's yeah. And I think that's such a big thing for like real world, right? In the real world, when kids grow up and they work in whatever industry or whatever job they choose to do, there's going to be times where you have to communicate with someone who either has a different communication style than you, or also speaks a different language than you. And that ability to problem solve, how do I share my thinking with someone who might not think or speak the way I do is such a huge, like, skill for just life. Right. It is. Wow. Well, you might have already touched on this, but one of the things that I like to say about the thinking classroom is that it's both magical and messy. So what has been most magical for you? What's been most magical, I think, for me is watching students who sometimes might not have had their voices heard in a math class really shine. Mm -hmm. And I still remember the day where a student last year fully explained unbundling a 10 into 10 ones. And it became his rule. And we like named it after him. Yeah. And another kid had come up with something else and we named after him and a teacher walked in the room and he the student went up to the teacher and he was like I have a rule and the <laughs> teacher was like what and he was like I have a math rule I figured out a math rule and just like that joy of like this this was me like I did it as yeah. opposed to I think like the past where it's such a teacher centric way of like learning right like it was true ownership and they're seeing themselves, right, as mathematicians who do math. Exactly. And, like to be like, I have the rule, right? Yes. They're owning it. Right. Um, what has been most messy? And I guess when I say messy, messy doesn't always mean bad because when we're in the midst of thinking, it is a messy process. So it doesn't have to be like an like an unproductive messy, but you could take it either way, like a productive messiness or kind of a challenge messiness. What's been most messy? I think one of the messy pieces and probably what might make it hard for some educators to want to dive in is there is this lack of what we would call like control, right? We're giving a lot of the voice to students And that can be hard because you can't always plan for what is going to come of what you're doing. 
but I found that in that mess, I've sort of realized where my communication or my launch of a task is sometimes off or how like what the way I viewed like a problem is what it, where it was going to take us was not nearly a, the same as what my students heard. Mm-hmm. And so I think one, it's made me better at communicating my ideas and my own thoughts with students and teachers, but also like relinquishing the control, like, and realizing that the noise in the classroom is like this beautiful buzz. Like I always say like, if there's a buzz in the room, it's a mathematical one and it might feel uncomfortable because as a kid, like that's not the kind of schooling I necessarily grew up with, but it's a good buzz. And to know that noise doesn't equate to not doing work and that kids talking to each other does not mean that they're not learning yeah and just enjoying that kind of joyful hum in the room I remember the first time I did non-curricular tasks when I just started the building thinking classrooms and I'm standing in the middle of the room and there's that buzz you're talking about and I'm thinking this is this is what Peter's talking about. This is thinking. And how have I not been exposing my kids to this for the last 28 years? It's not that they weren't ever thinking, but it's just different when they're around the perimeter of the room and they're just talking with each other and thinking out loud. It's it's magical. And, and there's messiness to it. And like you said, we have to be able to um, be comfortable with the uncomfortable newness of what a thinking classroom can sound and look like. Exactly. And sometimes I think, you know, at first I'll look at some groups and I'll think to myself, oh, like they seem like they're off task or, you know, are they truly engaged in the work? And then when you give them that time to think and process through things, I find that generally the kids do come around. Mm -hmm. And I think for some of my students who need that extra time to be able to think, removing that pressure of, you know, like, here's the problem, we need an answer, gives them the opportunity to also have a say in what they think and how they're learning. So, you know, that that extra process time that we often lose because... We're trying to fit everything in, but for what, right? Like, is there a true benefit to it? And when you mentioned, like, it could look like kids are off task, it reminds me of Peter talking about how those kids are going to stand out more than they would in like a traditional math setting when everyone is all seated in their spaces. Uh, Those kids are likely disengaged we just can't tell but when we stand them up and we move them around the room it's just more obvious (laughs) that they might be a little off task um and I think his fireside chat where he was talking about you know his analogy of the shaft and the blade of like a hockey stick and moving kids who might look like those outliers down to the where we would expect students to be, you know, one of his ideas he had, which I think was more for like 
someone who truly was disengaged, but something I've used when I've seen a kid not really sure what to do with their board was just kind of kind of assigning students like a job to do. And it was funny because I was, you know, you hear someone's awesome ideas and you're like, okay, that might work. But then, you know, will it really work in practice? But I remember one day I saw a student and like, they just like, they were sitting at their desk and I, I, I wasn't sure what was going on. So I went over to them and I said, listen, the answer to the problem is this. There's a lot of boards. I'm not sure I can get to everyone. Can you just come back and let me know if there are any boards that do not yet have this answer? Mm. So the student went around like, and he was like, all right, so these are the boards that don't have the answer. And I said, okay, I'm looking over at this board here. It looks like they don't have the answer and they both look a little confused. Do you think since I have to go to like board three, do you think you could go over to board seven and help them and then let me know like what ends up happening? So he went and did it. And later on, like when it was time for consolidation, he comes up to me and he goes, I had to do all of the work. They were not doing the work, but I went over there and I had to do it all. And I was like, oh, I said, that group is so lucky that they got to have you in your group. And that like smile on his face. And I was like, all right, it works. Like, and I gave him this purpose. And I think that's such an important piece. And I don't know if I would have even noticed, like you said, like if he'd been sitting at a seat, like, like that's the kid who probably doodles on their worksheet and then they hand it in and the teacher's like, what are you doing this whole time? Mm -hmm. So he was instead disengaged for a couple of minutes, but then very quickly brought right back into the thinking task. That was a brilliant move you made. So brilliant. Um, And I assume that from then on, he was able to engage more quickly in tasks. He definitely has. There's been some more moments where I've been like, all right, I'm going to go over. I'm going to give him another job. Yeah. But every single time I've given a job, he's really risen to that occasion. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's huge, right? Kids want to be seen and celebrated and feel like they have a purpose and that's what I love about building thinking classrooms because they all are seen. Like you say, like when you stand in that center of the room, you look around, like I can see everyone's work. Mm -hmm. And on some days, one kid might be doing more work than on another day. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And what someone once pointed out to me too is, okay, so if they don't, you know, put in their full effort, that one task, that's one task. Right. And I said, you know what, you're right. And if we're doing this all the time, like they are getting things out of it. And oftentimes just because they might not be looking like they're thinking doesn't actually mean that they're not thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about the novelty of the tasks and just the fact that they connect to them is huge. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, one of the things that I appreciate about you and you are the first person I saw do this on Facebook is that you write on their boards and you write specific things. Can you tell us more about that? Because I think people will really appreciate what you do. Yeah. So when I was walking around a lot, I would overhear conversations and I realized that I could not recall or remember all of those pieces, but that what kids were saying was 
really interesting. So I started writing down little speech bubbles of what kids were saying. Mm-hmm. And I, I was looking through pictures the other day and I saw one that was like, Mrs. Weiss is trying to make my brain explode. <laughs> and other ones that was like, my brain hurts from doing all of this thinking. And then what ended up happening is sometimes I would also write down when a kid was like, oh, I made a mistake. And it would say, oh, I made a mistake. And it normalized making mistakes to the point that later on in the year, kids would start writing down, I made a mistake, but here's what I did to fix it. Oh, that's And then they would show their work. And then even this year, a kid, I walked by one day and they were like, I'm regrouping. I was like, that's great. I'm going to write that one down. Mm-hmm. And then two days later, I saw another board write, I'm regrouping. <laughs> I was like, all right. And just to, like to show them that, yes, math is doing and showing on the boards, mm-hmm. but also what they're saying is yeah. so important. And I love their little like quotes and quips. And the kids would often want also a picture in front of their board with their speech bubble. <laughs> they, they frequently would ask, can you take a picture of my board to send it to my parents? Oh, that's great. And that ownership, right? Like it's not my work that they're proud of. It's not anything to do with like, oh, my teacher taught me this. It's look what I figured out how to yeah. do. Yeah. And I think that's huge. I'm I think for some of them too, they don't even realize they're doing such complex things. Remember last year I was watching a student solve and I turned to the math coach and I said, are they doing partial sums? Mm-hmm. They were like, yeah, they are. And I said, I don't know if that's something I'd expect to see in second grade, but that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And just watching them figure it out and then saying, Hey, you're doing something really complicated. It has a name. And right. it. I think that joy that they have in finding out that what they're doing is something that mathematicians frequently yeah. do is amazing. Yeah, you're giving them the space to grapple and, and tinker and solve these problems on their own. That productive struggle is so important. Um, I love that. Back to the things that you write on the whiteboards. I've wanted to do this for a long time. And for some reason, I just didn't. But last week, I started capturing some things and I wrote them on their whiteboards. So I wrote, um, one little boy said, what do you mean (laughs) to his partner? (laughs) I thought that was brilliant, right? Because they don't always, they don't always ask questions of each other. They just like, okay. You know, and he said, what do you mean? So I wrote, what do you mean on the whiteboard? And then someone else was saying like, okay, let's start over. So I wrote that up there. And this other one was very, very simple. But this boy said, here you go. And he handed the marker over to his. So I wrote, here you go. I mean, it wasn't even this really like enlightening phrase, but it was something that I thought, okay, this is important. And this is something we've been talking about sharing the marker. So this is a phrase that we could all learn from. And then during consolidation, I just quickly just highlighted some of the things that I wrote. And I was wondering, could I make like a collection, like an anchor chart of sorts of phrases that the community is saying, and we just add to it? I don't, I don't know. I've, 
this is one of my wonderings, but I'm curious what you do with those phrases. Do you then like during consolidation, do you bring them up or you just leave them and not address them? How, what do you do with that? I think it depends on, on different things. Some of the silly ones, like Mrs. Weiss is going to make my brain explode. <laughs> To me, I just thought it was so funny. I had to do to sh- to show the parent that 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 their child was thinking so hard in class. Uh-huh. But I think some of those phrases that you were describing, those ones that are also almost that like social and emotional learning piece of how do you talk about what you're doing or how do you ask someone to explain their thing like what they were doing so that you can understand it better. I like sharing those ones like the. I made a mistake one last year was one, a big one. Yeah. I would highlight when I overheard kids saying it because I had a class that was hesitant to make mistakes, but by, but by kind of normalizing it and Mm -hmm. using it, I would hear more kids start to point out when they did make a mistake. And so then we started celebrating the mistakes because of that to the point that one time I said something in class, I said, oh, I was wrong. And they were like, no. You weren't wrong. You made a mistake. (laughs) And that difference in that language, because I think when you're wrong, there's almost like this shameful feeling to it. But in math, like when you make a mistake, it's just an opportunity to learn more and to figure out, well, where did I make that error? And I liked the fact that they were reframing my own thinking. Right. Wow. So you're giving them permission to feel the things they feel, to speak like mathematicians, taking ownership. Again, we keep talking about ownership, taking ownership of the language of a mathematician and a thinker and a problem solver. Yeah, I just love it. So I'm going to continue to write on their whiteboards and capture those thoughts and think about what I could, what's the next step that I could do with those. So and it's such great evidence too, just in terms of, you know, how do kids work together? it can be almost very telling what you overhear at a group. Yeah. And sometimes like that here, like like you take a turn or here you have the marker or whatever things we hear kind of gives us a good pulse for how things are working in the classroom. Right, for sure. One of the other things that I love that you do is the note making. What's that look like in your classroom? How often... Do you do it? Um, just some particulars about that. What does it look like? Yeah. Last year I was really, I was like, I'd say worried to start note-taking because I really didn't know what that was going to look like. That felt messy. If we want to talk about, because I was like, I'm going to give them a blank notebook. Mm-hmm. But, you know, during the conference this summer, I had learned about that four quadrant note-taking. Yeah. And so At first, this school year, I thought to myself, oh, I'm not going to really worry about the note-taking, you know, it's fine. But a few weeks ago, I started realizing that the longer I hold off on trying to do the note-taking, I think the longer, like the harder it was going to be to introduce something. So I decided to try, instead of the four quadrants, I said, all right, I'm going to do, basically, I called it my two square. Mm -hmm. So I have on one side, it says example. And on the other side, it says things to remember. And I, the first day I just sort of offered it. I said, this is a math notebook. I said, my students last year, they loved their math notebooks so much. They took them with them to third grade and they're using them. And I said, 
the notes aren't for me. I'm not going to be looking at them to see what you're doing and you're not being graded on it. It's not going to count for anything. I said, I might look at them because I'm curious to see if this idea works, but what you write down is really truly what I, what you think you need to know and what you think you want to remember. And for some students the first time without like any big framework, it was really hard. So then the next time for the example I offered, I said, I'm going to give you some sentence frames you can use. So we were working on bundles of 10. So for exa an example, I was talking about how we could count by groups of 10 from a number to another number. Mm -hmm. So I drew on the board, I drew a number line and I wrote 10 and I wrote 70. And I said, you could, for your example, show how many bundles of 10 it takes to get from 10 to 70. And then I said, maybe under your things to remember, you want to remember what a bundle is. So you might write bundle equals blank. And I found giving that bit of structure, especially with my English language learners, emergent multilinguals, like that was huge. Or any kid who just struggles with getting started with writing. And so I've been looking at them and the things kids want to remember and what they do is it. They've already amazed me. Wow. I had one student one day write under things to remember, 110 equals 10, two tens equals 20, three tens equals 30. And I was like, that is fantastic and amazing. And some of them are just writing down exactly what they did on their boards as an example. Yeah. But it's, they're like almost just continuing to extend that thinking that they just did at their boards. Okay. And for the most part, they're really engaged in doing their note taking. And even we've only done it four times so far, but the quantity of what they're putting in has increased mm -hmm. and it has gotten more focused to the actual task of what we were doing. So I'm really excited to see kind of where it goes. And I think it also kind of, allows the students to take back what we were just talking about and doing and put it all back together. So like kind of like the, okay, we did all this math. So what? It's more of that taking that collective knowing and doing as Peter says, and move it to that individual knowing and doing part of that, exactly. part of that closing the lesson, which he's spending a lot of time talking about these days. Yes, exactly. And I think, too, for them to see that what they did on the boards was valuable and the idea that we can put it in onto a piece of paper to remember, mm -hmm. not because the teacher told me that this was something important to remember, but because it was a word or something that was important to them. The other day I said, what words might you need help spelling that you'd like to remember? Because I think for some kids, that is a barrier, right? If they don't know how to spell the word, but they really do have something they want to remember, well, how can I help them? And a kid said, that thing we were doing on the board with the line. And I said, oh, a number line. And they really, like they had taken to it. They really liked that. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they wanted to make sure that they could remember. And I st it still sticks out in my mind because last year we were talking about regrouping at one point. And I had asked, you know, what do we call that? And the student was like, hold on. And he had taken out his notebook because he had written <laughs> down the word. 
and he knew that he had written down the word. He yeah. just couldn't recall it. So that's awesome. that purpose for like what we're doing and it has that meaning. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, have you tried having them do the notes on the whiteboards first? Like Peter talks about. I did that early on in the school year. And that piece was really interesting. I think in a dream world, I would do the task, the consolidation and the notes on the board and then opportunity to record those notes if they wanted to, and then do some like check your understanding. But I think still building up the stamina in my classroom is a piece that can be a little bit challenging and also just like the the (laughs) time. Because it always feels like, you know, no matter what, even when you try to not worry about time, it always seems like either time slips away or you're like chasing after the next thing you need to be doing. Right. But I do like that opportunity. The one thing I have kind of taken from that is like continuing to offer opportunities to work together at their boards. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'll say to kids like, oh, if you want to like go work on your practice page together at your board, go for it. Yeah. So that kind of like collaboration. Right. Well, as you work through this note making thing, I think you should share your process, you know, the, the things you're trying and doing in the Facebook group, because I, I know there are other teachers who would definitely benefit from seeing what this could look like at that second grade third grade level. I think that's the piece that was most challenging for me when he was talking about this quadrant because it felt so above what second graders can do. But at the same time, the reason why I really think it's important to try and to, I mean, it might, it might not be the best approach, but I think building thinking classrooms has really taught me that like you cannot assume anything about a student's capabilities and their, you know, not just their capabilities in terms of math, but just like, don't assume that they can't do it, like give them a chance. And I think with the note-taking, giving them a chance. And it's, I think, you know, in second grade, giving them scaffolds and support so that they can access things isn't taking away their opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. You're giving them what they need to be successful and you're still giving them the chance to do their own thinking at the same time. Yeah. I've heard it called like presumed competence. Yeah. So I like that, that perspective. Exactly. Um, I think it's easy to say, oh, they can't do that, you know, but how how do I know? Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm sure there are people wondering, can my kids even stand at whiteboards and do tasks that I haven't taught them how to do, right? And we are proof that kids can do this. And they want to do it and they remember it. I think what stands out in my mind is our math coach that had done some tasks in classrooms last year. And at the start of the year, she poked her head in my room and I said, oh, before I forget, your box of shoes are on my shelf. And she was like, oh yeah, those shoes I use for the tasks. And my students started rattling off like the designs on the little shoes and what they had done with the task because they had connected to the story of the math. Hmm. And I, it, it surprised her because she didn't remember all of the shoes and the kids yeah. were like, 
there was that cat shoe and then there was that small shoe. They really, they soaked it all in so much. And I think it was such a meaningful thing. And at the very end of the day, it's a connection opportunity Mm -hmm. beyond just the academic piece. Like there's this connection to each other, to the story or whatever real world connection our math task brings us to. And just the connection of us working together with our thinking partners. It's just beautiful from beginning to end. There's just so many wonderful, positive um, results from having a thinking classroom. So as we wrap this up, Mike, my last question for you is, what do you think that person, that educator who is new to the thinking classroom needs to hear? Because it's not going to be all roses all the time and rainbows and unicorns. What do they need to hear to get started and to stick with it? I think to be be willing to accept that every lesson will not go the way you have in your own mind planned, but that there is still learning happening regardless of the outcome whether it's mathematical learning or social and emotional learning, and that relinquishing the classroom to be within the the hands of the learners is the greatest gift that you can give your students. Mm. And that sense of joy and ownership and community, that extends beyond that block of time where you're doing your math lesson. I feel like it just completely has transformed what my classroom is as a whole. And it's an amazing gift to give children to be able to allow them to think freely and to make sense of their learning in a way that makes the most sense to them. And that if someone gets confused or if a student looks off task, that's okay. It's okay to have a task that goes not well. I certainly have had certain tasks where I'm like, well, that made no sense. And that was really a, a poor choice in tasks. Yep. And I've admitted it to students and I've said, hold on, this is not working. Mm-hmm. This is a bad idea. Let's try again. And I think for them, they see that I'm too learning with them right. and that there's not one right way or one right answer. Well, I don't think I need to say anything else. Like that's a <laughs> mic drop couple minutes of wisdom from you, Laura. And I hope that so many people listen to this conversation. And when they do, I feel like they're going to be very inspired. I know I was inspired and I've taken away some things that I want to do better in my own thinking classroom. So thank you. Thank you so much for talking with me today and sharing all of your thinking classroom wisdom with us. Thank you. And I think just as much as we value the community that we build within our classrooms, I think the building thinking classrooms community of professional educators is such a great support system. Um, I felt so like rejuvenated after the conference that it was kind of like, all right, like, let's go. Like when school start and to know that there are other educators that you can lean into for support is huge. I saw our group just hit 10,000 members. So there's 10,000 people out there who want to work together 
-hmm. And so if someone's, you know, worried about joining building thinking classrooms or not quite sure, know that the support extends beyond your school community that, you know, we all help each other out to make the best of this amazing approach to teaching math. Yeah. Yeah. We've got people's backs. So yeah, we are definitely there to help support. And the, the group is full of people just like Laura who are (laughs) um, ready to share what they're doing and cheer them on. So thank you so much for talking with me today, Laura. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So isn't she amazing? I want to take a road trip to Massachusetts and hang out in Mrs. Weiss's classroom for a while. I love this. Math is a bridge to building a community. And if you've been familiar with Building Thinking Classrooms, you know that she's so right. We're not just liberating students to think, we're building a community. And math is that bridge. I love it. I also love how she engaged with a disengaged student, preserved his dignity, and gave him access to the math. How brilliant is that? And isn't it lovely the way she captures their voices and writes their thoughts on the whiteboard? I love how she's just, you know, sneaking around and eavesdropping and then finding the beautiful nuggets that need to be shared with the rest of the class. I'm going to continue doing that. Lastly, I think we should all get Let's Do Math t-shirts. I'm game. In the meantime, in the famous words of Peter Liliadal, no one ever died doing thinking classrooms. Just try it.